Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have part three of TBI Tuesday. That is where I'm sharing a couple of chapters from TBI or CT, What the Hell is Wrong with Me, audiobook, narrated by Derek Dysart. I think he did an amazing job. Right now, I believe the audiobook is $2.99 for all of June on Apple and Chirp, maybe even Barnes and Noble, but double check that. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying the story. All right, let's go into chapters five and six right now. I'll stick around and talk a little bit about it afterwards. All right, hope you enjoy it. Chapter five. Over the past decade, I'd been to Oregon seven times. Two of the trips were with my family in the last year in the hope we might relocate there, and another two visits when I was working on the book Unlocking the Cage. The first three visits were to see my writing mentor, Tom Spanbauer, and his partner, Sage Ricci, who tattooed the inside of my right bicep. In 2009, on the second of those trips to visit Tom and Sage, Michael Poorman, who was living in Battleground, Washington, took me fishing on the Columbia River. I don't remember much about the day besides the beauty and Michael being very friendly, open, and straightforward. I'd only known him for one year at Brown, but my impression of him was as someone who had gone out of his way to make me feel welcome and part of the football team. As a larger-than-life Oregonian who grew up on a survivalist compound, Michael could spot an outsider and knew what it was like to feel a little different. Unlike normal trips where I tried to squeeze in training and writing, this one was dedicated to Michael. If I knew my days were numbered, I'm not sure I'd be so kind with my time and spend it talking to an old acquaintance about a painful subject. So I didn't feel like a complete stranger. I ran through Michael's life on Facebook, memorized the names of his wife and kids. Even though I had GPS and Michael gave me detailed instructions to get to his in-laws in Astoria, where he and his family were staying for the month, I pulled up to the wrong house. Fortunately, a friendly face popped out a second-story window. The blonde teenager asked if I was looking for her father and pointed out the beautiful Victorian house across the street. Michael greeted me, filling the doorway at 6'5 and 250 pounds. Although he would later show me photos to prove how much muscle he had lost, had he not told me about the cancer, I never would have guessed. After a quick introduction to Sarah, his beautiful wife of 14 years, the three of us headed to lunch with Sarah behind the wheel. Michael had recommended that I interview Sarah as she was the one who had done all the research on CTE and his cancer and would be able to provide me with an alternative perspective. I was grateful she was able and willing to join us. Having just come from the gym, Sarah was hoping for a nice salad, which sounded perfect to me. But Michael had his heart set on taking me to his favorite pub. She explained they didn't have good salads there, but Michael said they had his favorite beer and he wanted me to experience the view of the river. Although I sensed a little irritation on both ends, Sarah remained calm and let it go. It was beautiful outside on the dock, but also chilly. After a few minutes of watching me shiver in my t-shirt, Michael walked around the table and put his jacket around my shoulders. Had it been any other male, I probably would have refused, but I thanked him. 
and we got in some small talk about our families while figuring what to order. When the food arrived, we dug into the issue. When was the first time they realized there might be something wrong with Michael's brain? There was no hesitation on either end. It was 2013, a year after they'd returned from a two-year stay in Australia. They were at a party when Sarah noticed Michael's behavior was a little odd. At first, she attributed it to alcohol, but it got worse. Michael becoming agitated and delirious, the police being called. By the time the police arrived, Sarah and others were afraid Michael may have had a stroke. He was taken away in an ambulance to the hospital, where the doctors realized something was going on with his brain and ordered an MRI. The neurologist called it a disassociative episode, which is an involuntary escape from reality. The doctor compared the MRI of Michael's brain to that of a 75-year-old with a deeply ridged frontal lobe very similar to Michael's. We continued lunch and I asked a few questions, just so I would be able to formulate more for the real interview the following morning, which I would record because, as Michael could relate to, my memory was awful. Throughout the lunch, Sarah was very aware of our surroundings and seemed a little on edge, like she was just waiting for something bad to happen. The more they described how Michael's CTE could be set off, the more I understood she was protecting Michael, herself, and others around us. Back at the house, Michael and I pulled chairs up to the fire pit while Sarah, a brilliant mechanical engineer, built the fire. Whether she was around us or inside the house, Michael couldn't stop praising Sarah and bragging about how smart she is. He was incredibly proud of her, both of us feeling that we got the much better deal in our marriages. Over pizza and beer, Michael and I did a lot of catching up, Michael telling me stories about Brown that we both thought I should have remembered. The afternoon spilled into the evening, our conversation zipping all over the place as we watched his son Mateo play with his cousin on the front lawn while Michael and I took turns throwing balls to their adorable little dog, Boris. I checked my phone and was shocked to see it was still light out at 9 o'clock. Time for both of us to get some rest. I returned to the house the next morning to catch Michael at his best, his Adderall kicking in, which would help him with focus. Not wanting to waste any of their time or energy, I set up my recorder in a quiet room where there wouldn't be any distractions. Michael and Sarah joined me, and we got started with a recap of Michael's history, specifically looking for early signs of head trauma since it seems those injuries do the most damage. The earliest concussion Michael could remember was in elementary school. To impress a girl, Michael tried to do a flip on the monkey bars, the back of his head slamming down on the asphalt, knocking him unconscious, and leaving him with three stitches. Although he hadn't thought much of it, when the subject came up the day before, I asked Michael about his boxing. He began Golden Gloves at six, with his first bout at seven. He continued amateur boxing for the next seven years and for two more while at Brown. Altogether, he had 63 bouts, even one against a young Michael Grant who would go on to become the world heavyweight title challenger. When asked if he thought the boxing might have had any effect on his brain damage, Michael said no. He always wore headgear. I didn't want to burst his bubble, but I told him my understanding was that headgear doesn't do shit for our brain. It provides a false sense of security and does very little to lessen the force of the blow. 
Headgear is great for preventing lacerations, but two of my worst concussions occurred while wearing top-of-the-line headgear, not to mention the countless mild ones. Michael also pointed out that he had never been knocked out in boxing. Having five professional boxing bouts under my belt and plenty of sparring, I knew it was common to go down but remain conscious. I asked him if that had ever happened to him. Oh yeah, I definitely got knocked in my ass and had my legs give out. We left boxing alone and went on to football. Michael started tackle football in sixth grade and had his first concussion from it the following year and had to sit out practice for two days. In ninth grade, he had another one and was told to shake it off. Anytime he would have headaches throughout his football career, he was careful not to use his head, something he managed to do quite well as he was one of the biggest kids on the field. Michael's time at Brown University was when things grew more serious. His first concussion only caused him to miss one practice. The second one knocked Michael out for a few seconds, and he was taken for a CT scan, which showed three blood spots. Ten days later, the scan was clean, and Michael returned to the field. He felt his third concussion was relatively mild, leaving him disoriented as he stumbled to the wrong huddle. I reminded Michael that a concussion is not what we were taught to believe. What about having his bell rung, getting a dinger, feeling woozy after a big hit? He said, those happen all the time. That was part of the game. I asked, were there any thoughts about future damage? Did you consider not playing anymore out of fear? Michael shook his head. Back then, we all knew Muhammad Ali was fucked up and stuttering, but that was understandable. Getting punched like that could cause problems, but there was no danger from football. Although Michael had been in a handful of scuffles off the field, he didn't believe those resulted in any concussions. The same went for the one car accident 25 years ago when he'd hit his head on the steering wheel. I wasn't sure if it might have contributed to his CTE, but I'd been reading how repetitive gunfire could cause TBIs. Knowing he was a gun fanatic, I asked, Have you done a lot of shooting? Fuck yeah, dude. At my bachelor party, we did 7,000 rounds with machine guns. Hell, we did 1,500 rounds the weekend before last. There was a time I was shooting every week. We had a gun range in my basement. I grew up on a survivalist compound. Guns were definitely part of the equation. There was another factor that might have played a role, but I didn't bring it up. As a very successful businessman, Michael had constantly been flying around the country. Jet lag can greatly affect sleep in the brain, but it was time to move on. So, when did the first signs begin? Was there anything prior to the disassociative episode in 2013? Sarah said, looking back, I'd say it first started kicking in when we came back from Australia in 2012. It crept up over time. There were little shifts in his personality. After the disassociative episode and brain scan, Michael was diagnosed with stage 2 CTE symptoms and sundowners, which is a neurological phenomenon associated with increased confusion and restlessness in patients with a form of dementia that typically gets worse as the day progresses. I wondered if he had any of the warning signs. Did you have headaches prior? I never got a lot of headaches, Michael said. But he also realized that for a couple of years leading up to the episode, He'd been taking muscle relaxers for his back and enough drugs for other conditions that might have masked headaches. 
How was your memory before all this? He said his memory was great until his mid-twenties when he stopped being able to remember people's names. Understanding how important that was in the business world, Michael researched ways to improve his ability and began writing mental stories about people, often wowing others with the things he remembered about them. Sarah said, His short-term memory, especially when he's in an agitated state, he won't remember at all or it will be really spotty. I asked what some of his other issues were. Michael said, On a scale of 1 to 10, a 2 event happens, your emotional reaction should be a 2, but sometimes I'll respond at a 9. I asked if he'd been like that before, and he said, No, not really. Sarah said, Michael has always been a big, demonstrative guy, and he has a big personality, type A and assertive. Having that personality type was an asset when well-executed in life and his career field. However, once the CTE came into play, Sarah said that personality type wound up working against him and became a liability. I became a director for a multi-billion dollar software company, Michael said. I took two companies public. I built a hell of a career, and if it wasn't for CTE, I'd probably be a CEO somewhere. As Michael progressed in his career, the responsibilities became greater, as did the stakes. Due to his sundowners, Michael's had to modify his schedule, taking breakfast meetings instead of dinners or happy hours. If he was going to get a box to entertain clients at Boston Garden or Staples Center, he'd show up for the game but leave by the first period. I asked if that was just a precaution against the rare chance he'd have an outburst or an inappropriate reaction. He shook his head. More often than not, it was going to happen. Sarah said, We went through many years of keeping it quiet and creating coping mechanisms so Michael's business constituents wouldn't find out. There was a fear of him being devalued or compromising his career. They also didn't tell family or friends for a long time, only revealing it to his closest friends if they were going to be out with Michael at night. He said, This is not a badge of honor. It's something people don't understand. CTE is fucking embarrassing. It's a loss of control. When I start having my CTE outburst, I'd be embarrassed, but I wish Sarah could film it. It's like I'm having an out-of-body experience because it's like half my mind realizes that what I'm doing is absurd, but half my mind is like a dog on the bone. I'm right. You are wrong. Fuck you. I start raising my voice and yelling. Two minutes into the outburst, the logical side of my brain that's still there says, Dude, why are you even fucking arguing? Do you even know what you're arguing about right now? He said, After one of my episodes, I just feel like a bag of shit. I'm full of shame and guilt. I feel out of control. That I'm not in control of my own faculties. I feel embarrassed. I don't want to say I feel depressed. If I didn't know why I was having these experiences... I would probably feel really depressed. Sarah says it's like a dog crashing in the mirror, like I'm fighting with myself. It makes me feel like a shitty dad. It makes me feel like it created separation between Sarah and I. I asked, Can you forgive yourself? Can you see it's not really you? I absolutely forgive myself. First thing I do is make an amend. I apologize to my family and say I'm really sorry and I love you. I've never laid a hand on my wife or kids. I never have. I guess I scare the fuck out of them with yelling. I hated having to ask, 
Are you afraid you might be a danger to them at some point? I would hope not. Honestly, Mark, I would commit suicide before I did that. If it progressed to that point, I'd pull a junior Seau and put a shotgun on my heart. We paused for a bathroom break, and I confided with Sarah just how guilty I felt. Not only because I was okay and Michael wasn't, but also because I was looking for any signs that would show why he developed much worse CTE symptoms than I had. Michael and I shared many of the same traits, both being bigger men with shaved heads, goatees, and plenty of tattoos. Not to mention all the emotional similarities and struggles with anger, addiction, and narcissism. It was difficult for me not to look at him and fear that is what my future holds. Sarah assured me that that was a normal reaction and that she completely understood. Her hope was that by sharing their story, they could help others, including me, see their symptoms and come up with coping strategies. Back in the room, guessing I knew the answer, I asked Michael, Would you do it all again? I've always been outcome-oriented, Michael said. I would not have gotten into Brown University had I not played football. It's a great conversation starter. Definitely opened doors for me in business. I look at where I am right now with family, financially, and all that, and absolutely I would do it again. If you asked me if I would want my son to do it, I would say no. Sarah was stunned and asked him if he was serious. At our current crossroads, you would do it again? Well, my cancer is not from football. Yes, but fighting your cancer has been affected by football. The cancer had only been discovered a few months earlier when Michael went to the doctor for another issue. A few days later, driving home from work, he received a phone call from his doctor telling him to go immediately to the emergency room, that his immune system was gone. 42 hours later, Michael was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and undergoing chemotherapy. Sarah said, Around the time most people get chemo brain, forgetful, tired, agitated, Michael started doing that, but it very quickly turned a corner and went beyond chemo brain. Agitation became where they needed to sedate him. The confusion became an inability to advocate for himself. The delirium became full-blown hallucinations, a fear of being attacked, them versus us. Always some kind of war going on. At that point, they brought in neurology and psychiatry. They moved him to a quieter room with consolidated care to lower stimulation in the environment. Michael's oncologist hadn't even heard about CTE when Sarah brought it up as a possible reason for her husband's extreme reaction to chemo. They contacted Boston University, where Michael is part of the legend Longitudinal Examination to Gather Evidence of Neurodegenerative Disease study. Since Michael is the first person in the study fighting a blood cancer, the Boston University researchers didn't have any answers, but understood Michael's fear that he would lose his mind in the process of trying to survive the cancer. Chemo was stopped, and Sarah said, it took the course of several weeks for him to have better cognition. Doctors couldn't tell if the chemo-CTE mix had caused irreversible damage, but Michael said, post-chemo, it takes less to set me off. My CTE has definitely progressed, and now I have a slight tremor in my left hand. Michael said, I'm a math guy. At the most simple level, I did not have the genetic markers for success. 
There are five specific markers. If you have those, they have treatments with a 97% rate for a five-year outcome. With my genetic markers, I had less than a 20% chance of a five-year outcome. And that's with reinduction and five more rounds of chemo, basically being chained to a hospital bed for seven to 10 months with the probability that I would be a vegetable. I looked at it doing two months of positive stuff. I don't want my kids to see me that way. I want my kids to remember a gentle giant that might get pissed off every now and then, a big, strong guy. I just did not want to end up an animal or less than an animal. If I had the genetic markers, even with the CTE, I would have done it, but the math just wouldn't work. Sarah said, this is a one-way street and I know where it's going, but part of me just wants to throw him over my shoulder and carry him back to Mayo and say pump him full of poison so there's a small chance. It's selfish. I've entertained the idea because at least he'll be alive even if he has a very diminished capacity and tremors. I can very quickly take away that selfish thought I'm having and I can understand Michael's dignity as a human being. That's not a dignified way to live for him. I can honor his choice, but it's a day-to-day struggle because I know I wield the power potentially that if I pushed him hard enough, I could get him to go in there and submit to treatment, and that's tough. Michael said, Maybe they can keep me breathing and my heart beating for another year, but I'm not alive. The physical acts that it took to cause that brain damage, those were not the acts of cowardly men. Those were not the acts of beta men. Those were the acts of alpha males, courageous men. How guys like that lived their lives and the mental image they have of themselves, that diminished capacity sucks. People are afraid of death. Michael said. I'm a Christian. If heaven is real, I know where I'm going. I have a lot of sadness about not experiencing weddings, anniversaries, and things like that. There is sadness there. Instead of a fear of death, there is a fear of being a burden on someone else. Diminished capacity. After interviewing their daughter, Ocean, I said my goodbyes and returned to the hotel, spending much of that night and the next morning in tears. Not sure I was up for this journey. But I refocused and headed home to my family, determined to do whatever I could to prevent the slide. I'd be back in six weeks with my wife for Michael's celebration of life party. Chapter 6 I'm back on a plane to Oregon, my wife reading a book beside me. Perhaps I don't have everything squared away like I had hoped, but I'm in a much better place now than when I wrote the prologue last week. A big part of the reason for that was the conversation I just had with Dr. Allison Gordon to discuss my blood work. After a year on the Millennium Neuroregenerative Center's protocol, my blood chemistry is nearly where we want it. When I confided in Dr. Allison that I was worried about emotional instability and anger issues, She assured me that what I was experiencing was normal, considering all the circumstances. The main problem she pointed out was that I had not been exercising. Unlike the last few years when I was regularly training jiu-jitsu and practicing yoga, I had largely been sedentary outside of the limited physical therapy I'd been doing for various injuries. In addition to not having the physical outlet for emotional stability, 
She also pointed out that I was stressed from not having much time to write during summers and that I was researching a disturbing subject that takes me back to dark times. My responses to stress have been ingrained and would have to be re-examined if I didn't want to continue having the same reactions. She said that the ingrained stress response also went for my excess caffeine and cannabis consumption. We reach for the things that bring us calm, she told me. She suggested that I not consume cannabis one week each month to reset my levels and tolerance. I asked, what if I do one day off every couple days? Wouldn't that work the same? Her answer was, how about seven days in a row? You can do it. And to help me get my caffeine consumption in check, she went over some of the dangers associated with heavy use, such as acidic stomach and overstimulation of the adrenals, which could shut them off. Knowing my fear that I would develop CTE, Dr. Allison recommended I reread the book The Biology of Belief, which my acupuncturist had suggested a few days before. The first time I read that book was several years prior to my brain research, and it helped me become aware of just how powerful our beliefs are. Although I don't think positive thinking would stop CTE from advancing, I accepted that negative and fear-based beliefs would only cause more physical and emotional problems. I had to get my head straight and think positively as my wife had been encouraging me to do. One of the best things Dr. Allison said was that health and wellness are a lifelong journey. You can't just take a pill and expect everything to be better. That was exactly what I needed to hear. I could no longer tell myself that if I take all my vitamins and supplements, everything will be all good. Although I didn't dig the biology of belief out, I'm motivated and back on track. Instead of getting bogged down with details on who I will interview, what subjects I'll examine, and when and where I'll make those things happen, I decided I'd take the same approach I did with the book Unlocking the Cage, where I let things flow naturally. Doing things on the fly with no set plan. Open to possibilities. One interview leading me to another. Through that approach, I gained so many friends heard so many stories I would have missed, and learned lessons I'd never know. It also caused me a good amount of unnecessary head trauma because I couldn't say no to sparring and explain I was an out-of-shape 42-year-old with a history of concussions. One of those concussions was sustained at Team Quest Gresham in Oregon when my head slammed off the mat and everything went black for a second. I finished that practice, had an awesome interview with Matt Lindland, and then went back to the hotel with a pounding headache that stayed with me until the morning. Fortunately, I found a chiropractor who was able to relieve some of the pain and stiffness in my neck so I could go ahead with plans to visit Team Quest in Tualatin. I asked my buddy Brian to drive because I couldn't turn my head very far and the headache was still there. At the gym, I left my training gear in the car, only bringing my audio and video equipment. Scott McCory, the coach of popular UFC fighter Chell Sonnen, was teaching the children's class when we came in. I interviewed four of Scott's fighters before sitting down with him. Scott, a lifelong martial artist, touched on how it was the responsibility of coaches and managers to guide fighters and make sure they weren't too brave for their own good, one of my biggest faults as a fighter. 
He assured me that his gym had a family atmosphere and wasn't dog-eat-dog with animosity among fighters. If I wanted to give the MMA training a shot, I was more than welcome to join them. Watching him coach, listening to the fighters he respected, and understanding how much he valued honor and integrity, I knew I could trust Scott. I told him about my neck issue and how it felt like I'd been in a car accident, but I left out that it had been a concussion. He said not to worry and to go at my own pace, sit out if I needed. The practice was very difficult, and I wanted to quit several times, but I used the slogan on the back of Scott's Team Quest shirt to motivate me. Pain is merely weakness leaving the body. I finished the workout, and for the first time since I started the book project, I wasn't embarrassed joining the circle of fighters putting their hands together to wrap up the workout. But now I've learned that one of the most dangerous aspects of a concussion is training before it is healed. I'm not nearly as proud of my decision to work through the pain, the motto of every sport I've participated in since high school. I'm thinking about the concussion because I'll be visiting Scott tomorrow. On my last trip, he sent me a message asking if I'd be interested in hearing his concussion story. When I said I would, he made the same demand Michael Poorman had, insisting that his wife participate. Scott's neighborhood in Lake Oswego is beautiful, everything green and clean. Scott, who's 10 years older than me, greets me at the door and introduces me to his wife, Elisa, a charming woman who teaches for their school district. I get out my recorder and we sit at a table in their peaceful backyard. In our first interview, Scott explained that he began training martial arts in fifth grade because he'd been getting bullied. Now that my focus is on head trauma, I ask him to recall his path and any concussions he might have sustained. I started with some boxing and wrestling, Scott says. Gradually, I evolved into the martial arts nerd with karate and judo and everything. With some of the throws, I might have lost consciousness a couple of times. I was hardcore judo for a long time and getting thrown 300 to 400 times per day. It's hard. He says, I did karate and kickboxing and stuff like that, but it wasn't until I got into my late teens, early 20s, that I really started getting into more of the sparring and other arts like the Dog Brothers. You think about their motto, higher consciousness through harder contact. We wore full bell motorcycle helmets with our sticks, and it was not uncommon to see someone knocked out, and that's with a full helmet on. It was rough. I share my times practicing stick fighting and how it was brutal. A lot of pain and headaches in just the few times I'd picked up the sticks. I ask, when was your first major concussion or the first time you were scared by a blow to the head? The first one was on my third and last MMA fight. Scott didn't start fighting until he was 40 and had managed to dominate the other sports he'd been in, such as wrestling and kickboxing, without taking any real damage. His first two MMA fights went well, and Scott got submissions in 30 seconds. But in the third, his opponent landed a clean shot to Scott's temple that knocked him out. I ask how long he was out, but Scott says he doesn't remember it. Elisa says he got hit like 10 more times after he was out. They didn't stop the fight like they should have. When the referee was asked why he didn't stop it, he told them, 
Well, I always let title fights go longer. We always do. Scott says, I remember post-fight talking to people. I felt okay. It wasn't until about three hours after the fight back in the hotel room that I got up to go to the bathroom and I got vertical really bad and couldn't walk. She took me to the ER. Alisa reminds him, and you were throwing up for a while. At the hospital, they did a CAT scan and an MRI, but simply said Scott had a severe concussion. Alisa says, the scary part is that it lasted a good 10 to 12 months that he had symptoms of it. He had depression, loss of memory. It affected his vision. Scott says, I work in aerospace where I interpret x-rays of the jet engines looking for flaws, and I just was unable to concentrate. The resulting poor work performance was making Scott's depression worse. So Elisa called his boss and explained that they had to treat the concussion as an injury and accommodate him. They did make the changes for Scott, but let him know that if he continued fighting, he would probably lose his job. His symptoms worsened when he did anything that needed concentration. As soon as I couldn't concentrate, I felt myself getting depressed. Then I'd get frustrated and short-tempered. It was all the classic signs that I looked up of what a concussion entailed. Did you have any idea a concussion could last that long? I didn't think it would. Like every fighter, I thought it won't happen to me. I'll heal in a week. And then, when it went on for months and months, it was very tough to get over. Scott says, that fight happened in 2006. In 2010, I was training jits and had someone in a submission hold. When I looked down, I couldn't feel them tapping. Fortunately for Scott, one of his students was a paramedic and realized Scott was having a stroke. Scott recovered from the stroke and went right back to coaching. Two years later, Scott was getting Chow ready for the second Anderson Silva fight. They were doing an exhibition with Scott holding mitts for Chell, who wore bag gloves with no padding. Scott called out a spinning back kick, but the music was so loud that Chell heard spinning back fist. He hit me clean on the side of the temple and dropped me. Four days later, while training him and Yushin Okami, I ended up dropping in the middle of the training session. I had four grand mal seizures and bit through my tongue in three places. It was pretty traumatic. Elisa says, From the stroke, he had similar things. He went into a depression again forgetfulness. It took him a while even though he felt he was fine. As time went on, he would have lapses of memory and attention span that were obvious to me. I asked if there was increased anger or irritation. Absolutely, she says. For the stroke, there was more depression and some anger and frustration. But after the seizures, I wasn't quite sure because they put him on a medication called Keppra, an anti-seizure medication, and one of the side effects can be increased aggression. It was obvious that would put a strain on any relationship. Elisa says, You have to be responsible for your behavior within your relationship and family, but then you also need them to be forgiving and open. As a partner, Elisa says, You've got to be deflective but accountable to whatever degree you can be and not just lay there and take it. There was definitely a lot of talking to be done trying to understand emotions. They tell me that Scott's mood swings seem to get worse later in the week, most likely after dealing with the stressors of running the gym, dealing with work and the family. 
Scott also suspects that it got worse at night. In the past, when Scott would get edgy, Elisa would pack his gym bag and tell him to go work out, which meant sparring. Now that he was limited in what he could do physically because of the concussion, that only added to the depression. Scott seems like an incredibly calm and peaceful person, so I ask how much anger or aggression he had before the events. I call it competitiveness. That's how I classify it, Scott says. I've always been very competitive at everything and had a serene outer shell, but I like to compete. When Scott was knocked out, the only medical advice they got was what they could find on the Internet. After the seizure, they had a neurologist to consult with and new treatments to try. One of the things Scott credits as being very helpful was playing brain games. I also really got into a lot of meditation. I got into therapy and talked with the psychologist about how to alleviate stress, and it helped a lot. He does a lot of yoga and meditating, the Wim Hof breathing, Elisa says. Referring to the different things that affect recovery, Scott says, I'll be 58 this year. I question how much of the memory loss is from growing older and how much is from concussions. Sometimes I forget stuff and then wonder if I'm being too hard on myself. I tell Scott and Elisa that my wife continues to insist that I'm fine, that I don't have any noticeable issues, and I'm overthinking it. And then I completely lose my train of thought, which I laugh off as being due to the brain injuries. The question comes back to me and I asked, if you hadn't had any of the brain trauma, do you think you'd be much different mentally and emotionally? I think one thing it has done is it led me down the path of meditation, which was a blessing in disguise. Scott says he always had sympathy for his fighters who'd suffered brain injuries, but it wasn't until his own concussion that he had the empathy. It's Saturday. The 90-minute drive to Astoria given me plenty of time to replay the conversation I'd had with Michael and his wife and realize how similar their situation was to the McCorys. Just as Scott could not have made it without the love and support of his wife, Michael had insisted the same, saying, I would have crashed and burned my career without Sarah. She gave up her career 15 years ago and my career became our career. Sarah said, we had a normal functioning house with kids and dogs, but as the CTE progressed, we had to make the house predictable and quiet. He would sometimes need to eat by himself or leave. She turned their house into a non-target-rich environment, removing things that could be possible triggers. She also explained the importance of creating a routine after the CTE. It became necessary, she said. He called a few times where he couldn't remember if he checked his luggage. To make things easier for Michael, they planned his trip entirely, giving him cue cards, not only for business meetings, but for things like checking in at the airport. Sarah said, We can't change the world, but we gave him coping mechanisms so he could navigate it. Even on family trips, they created a separate travel plan for Michael so he didn't become agitated from the added stress of taking care of them. All of this was an effort to protect her and the kids and to protect Michael. Sarah said the goal had been to create an optimal environment for Michael literally losing his mind. We had a whole retirement planned around his CTE. We were going to leave the country because we knew there wasn't good mental health care here. There's an island in the Caribbean that we really like. 
I'm an open water diver and I was going to start a dive shop. And Michael likes to cook. And so down there, we'd done the calculations and we could afford to have a live-in caretaker. I envisioned having a little kitchen in the dive shop where he could cook. It's predictable, stable, low trigger, low pressure, something he could do every day. When I asked what else helps, Michael said, I meditate. I say a series of mantras every morning. I read a lot of self-help books. I do cognitive therapy. Doing dishes or folding laundry is a form of meditation for me. Michael said, if I can be on a service-based orientation instead of a self-based orientation and be aware of my emotion, I have a much better day. I told Sarah that my wife is convinced I don't have brain injuries. I asked her, what would you tell my wife or the partner of someone who might have CTE? First, you have to educate yourself on what CTE looks like. Understand the mechanics of it, the pathology and the progression of it. Then you need to understand the human aspect of what it looks like. YouTube is a great source for that. Sarah said that before the disassociative incident, she noticed peculiar things about Michael's behavior and questioned if it was just from getting old or angry. She also thought it could be marriage problems, wondering if she was at fault. It's not you, Sarah said. Educate yourself and get help through psychology or psychiatry. You can make adjustments to control it better. Get therapy for the whole family and teach children not to take it personally. She said, It's a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Michael has done some hurtful and embarrassing things. It takes a really strong backbone to deal with it. I have emotional damage. My children have emotional damage. Their 16-year-old daughter, Ocean, confirmed just how difficult it had been. As a kid, she viewed her dad as a nice, caring, and genuine person who had random blow-ups, getting overly angry when it didn't make sense to be. As a preteen, she couldn't understand why Michael acted like that, and she internalized a ton of guilt. Ocean thought she was doing something wrong and that she should be able to help. This contributed to four years of severe depression during which she hated herself. Now that Ocean's matured, she sees Michael as two different people. Through therapy and honest communication with both Sarah and Michael, she overcame her depression and has a better handle on Michael's episodes. It still bothers me, but I don't take it personally. You wouldn't yell at a paralyzed person for not getting up and walking. Ocean said it was sad, but one of the coping mechanisms is that she had to distance herself from Michael. The rational side of me wants to argue with him when he freaks out, but I have to walk away and say sorry. Just let it go. When I asked her what she would tell someone else going through a similar situation, she said, In the beginning stages, take advantage of the good sides that you get and the normal part of him you get, because eventually you don't get those sides as often. Sarah said, I've seen the worst-case things like Aaron Hernandez headlines, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Michael has significant levels of CTE, but we're both motivated to keep our marriage and family together. We had to do unconventional things to deal with a peculiar disease. By compartmentalizing the disease and behavior, their family has been able to have a high-functioning life with CTE. If not, we would have divorced and he would have killed himself a long time ago, Sarah said. People are either going to be motivated to create a life around it or not. Sarah said, 
I've come to terms with Michael killing himself impulsively any moment. I've locked up guns. At a certain point, I said if he does it, he does it. She related an incident that happened earlier in the week. A small thing set him off, and he had a completely unwarranted response. When something like that occurs, I make a calming motion to the kids. They'll put on headphones and leave. Sometimes calming things will bring Michael down, or he'll go to another room and yell. It has to work itself out. One thing Sarah made very clear was that if you try to argue with someone with CTE, it will escalate. I could push Michael to suicide like that. I asked Michael, what would you tell other guys, guys you played football with? Although Michael hates the word surrender because it's the opposite of everything he'd been taught in athletics and about becoming a man, he said trust and surrender are the two biggest keys. If Sarah tells me that I'm having one of those episodes and moments, I have to trust her and leave, get out of that situation. Guys that are diagnosed now, I hope they are blessed with a partner like Sarah. He said, we'll be having arguments where I know I'm right and then she plays the CTE card. Whether it's hand signals or knee squeezes under the table when Sarah notices Michael's missing social cues or acting inappropriately. Her drawing attention to the behavior is often enough to diffuse the situation. Michael said, I have a limited tank, and I need to use all the resources in my tank just to make it through the day to be positive for my kids. The greatest impact you can have in your lifetime is how you can contribute to your family and community. Taking a mood stabilizer was another suggestion they offered. Michael said, We argued for six months before getting on Prozac. I didn't want to give up control. Although Michael sometimes wonders if just the placebo would do the same, he thinks there has been an improvement. Sarah agreed and said the Prozac slowed Michael down a bit to where he could see himself a little better. Michael said, The mindfulness has been a critical piece for me to gain control of my own emotions and to understand why I was insecure and try and let go of that. By doing that, it allowed me to trust Sarah. His advice to others was, practice mindfulness, meditation mantras, learn to connect to your emotions and understand your mental temperature, see a therapist, and work on the underlying problem, and hopefully you're blessed with a partner that could educate themselves on it. Educate your family. It takes a team. Be humble enough to change your life according to the disease. Man, chapters five and six pretty heavy i really have a hard time talking about it dealing with it you kind of know what happens with my friend michael you should be able to tell just from i mean the circumstances we we knew going in that he probably didn't have a long time to live so incredibly amazing that his family invited me to spend time with them to share their struggles everything that they've been through so i really do want people to hear it to understand it to you know, because I'm often talking about, okay, here's how we fix our brain. Here's what we can do. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's try to make it as good as possible. But like in Michael's situation, he wasn't going to fix anything. He couldn't fix his brain anymore. He couldn't work on his brain anymore. It was where it was. He'd already done quite a bit of damage to it. So, but the important thing was that they were able to cope. They were able to manage the way that he faced death absolutely amazing. It's how I want to go out. Definitely. I hope I am as brave. I'm hoping I'm surrounded by as much 
love and everything else. So just incredibly grateful for them. Also the Scott McQuarrie who had me go up there, you know, meeting Scott for unlocking the cage was awesome. Being able to interview him, train with his team. I really enjoyed him. We'd been friends since, and then being able to go and talk with him and his wife again. Those were things that I had no idea. I didn't know he had been through any of that. So by sharing their stories, by letting people know like, Hey, you're not the only one that's dealing with this. Here's an this person, here's this person. There's so many people that are dealing with some kind of brain health issue. So whether it's caused by traumatic brain injuries or not, I do not care. I don't care if it's repetitive blows to the head. I don't care what it is that sparked it, whether it was toxins and whatever. It's just, okay, we need to look at where our brain health is. What can we do to fix it? How can we keep our relationships strong without these relationships, without the support system? You know, if you're really struggling, if you're feeling suicidal, whatever else, it's like, eh, there's a good chance, you know, that maybe that will happen. So, but if you do surround yourself with a strong support system, I think that is huge by being open, by being honest, like Mike said, surrendering. Another thing I want to point out too, I wrote in the book about Michael and his early boxing. If I had, again, obviously no doctor, no scientist, any of that, but if I were to guess, I would say the majority of his brain health issues started. Like that's where it started. It was from the repetitive hits over and over and over and over and over and over and over in boxing. And then also playing football only added to that. But the combination of both and just all those really repetitive blows to the head, I think that probably did cause a lot of the damage. But also, like he said, he wouldn't change anything. He wouldn't not play football. So it... And I've kind of accepted that same thing. It's like, well, yeah, I, I did the things that I did and whatever. Now I, I've dealt with, or I'm dealing with the consequences. You know, you can't really, does no, absolutely no good to have regrets or to think about what you did. The one thing I would do different now is, okay, I'm not having my, unfortunately I didn't start playing tackle before 14, but yeah, there's no way I would let my son do that. I wouldn't let my son head a ball or my daughter head a ball in soccer. I wouldn't let them have any repetitive blows to the head. So I don't have regrets about things I have done, but that doesn't mean I'm going to let my children make similar mistakes or anything like that. So it's how we learn. It's how we, all right, guys. Hopefully you're digging this. Stick around for next Tuesday. I will share chapters seven and eight. All right. Hope you have a great week. And I will be back on Friday for episode, I believe it's 167, 168. Damn, we're getting up there. I think it's 167. Anyhow, check it out on Friday. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you have a great day. And I will talk to you later. Peace.